Thank you, Lord, for your awesome power. Thank you for your grace and goodness that you won't leave or forsake us, that we can trust you and rely upon your word to be true and that you will be faithful. There's so much security and comfort and rest that we have in you, knowing you, knowing what you've accomplished. And uh, as we read your word, Lord, may you fill us with your spirit so that we might hear what you have to say and apply it to our lives and be your faithful servants. We love you, Father. We thank you for calling us and for giving us an opportunity to, to bless your name together. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5. Belief in God impacts how we see and what we see. Uh, the 12 spies in Canaan, they illustrate this really well because you have 12, 12 spies sent into Canaan and they all saw the same thing, yet we had, there were 10 that returned with a bad report. They were really taken by the fortifications and the mighty people who lived there and they agreed, hey, it's a great land. It's a good land, but it's a land that consumes those who go into it. It devours the inhabitants. And basically, it's a death trap, and it's an ill-advised journey to go in. So God said, enter into the land that I've given you, and they refused. But two men, Caleb and Joshua, they trusted the Lord. They tore their clothes and said, hey, we can go in. We can take this land because of our God. Because their eyes were focused on God, they view the inhabitants of the land as bread. Have you ever been intimidated by a loaf of bread? Where you're like, it's out to get me. Run from the house. No, it's like, if it goes bad, you just chuck it out. A, a child can eat bread. You don't even need teeth to really eat bread. Now, there's some bread that could be a little crusty, but put some milk on it. Man, it gets pretty soft, right? In light of, the, so the unbelieving spies who didn't believe in God, they saw themselves as grasshoppers. But because those two spies looked to God, they said they are like bread to us. So the perspective totally changed the way they saw the same situation. Unbelief isn't just an issue for the Hebrews, not for those who perished in the wilderness but for Christians, people who have been delivered from sin and death, those who have seen and experienced the victory of Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit within us. I think next to pride, unbelief is one of the most sinister, um, destructive sins in the life of a believer because it's subtle. You don't see it, and it affects the way you see things. It affects the way you see yourself. We can be infested with unbelief and, and be adamant that we trust God and that we are following him, and yet the unbelief remains. And uh, it stunts our growth. It weakens us. So we're going to read about unbelief today in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. The fame of Jesus had gone throughout Israel. People flocked to hear him preach. And it says they pressed about him to hear the word of God. So Jesus had this teaching ministry, and people heard of the way that he taught with authority, and they came from everywhere to hear him, and they're pressing against him. And it says he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. 
Uh, two boats were beached near the water. So you have this rustic fishing scene. You've got two boats beached there. You've got the fishermen washing their nets. We later learn that these fishermen become disciples of Christ. You have Simon Peter and Andrew, and the other brother pair, James and John, were their partners. And to avoid the press of the people, Jesus asks Simon to get into his boat and to push out from the shore so he can teach the people. And uh, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had met Simon, though it's the first mention of him in the book of Luke. In the Gospel of John, after the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, to his disciples, two of whom were John and Andrew. So Andrew was Peter's brother. And he said, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And at that time, they stopped following John the Baptist and they started following Jesus. And Andrew went and got his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and said, hey, we have found the Christ. He meets with Jesus. They spend a day with him. Jesus gives him a new name. But over the passage of time, we see that they, where Jesus had been baptized, they left that area and they returned back to Capernaum, to that area of Tiberias, and continued in their occupation. So they went back to work. They have this encounter with Jesus. They've met him, but they go back to work. And it's really neat that hopeful followers, they would always seek out their rabbi. They would look at all the rabbis and they would choose one to follow, and they would ask if they could please follow them. And the rabbi decided if he wanted a follower or not. But Jesus does exactly the opposite. He goes to his followers to call them. And though they had been with Jesus before and left him back for their hometown, Jesus comes and he starts preaching right on their job site. So right where they're working, washing their nets, Jesus shows up and starts teaching the people. This reminds me of Romans 10.20 that says, But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. It wasn't Simon or Andrew or us who sought Christ. It was he who chose us and who sought us out, who called us to follow him. Luke 5 verse 4, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is quite a remarkable turn of events. Jesus has finished speaking. He tells Simon, you know, let's launch out in the deep for a catch. We're not going fishing, we're going catching. And I think fishing would be a lot more popular if you could be guaranteed. If you went fishing, you'd actually be going catching. What does verse 5 begin with? A but. But. Simon. That means he is not really in agreement with this idea. His professional experience is like, nah, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right place. This isn't the right way. And the reason given is we've worked all night. We have toiled all night and we've caught nothing. We haven't caught a single fish. And if we didn't catch fish with ideal conditions, why would we catch fish in the deep in the middle of the day? Besides, we've already washed our nets from the previous night's uh, efforts that were fruitless. All we did was pick up twigs and reeds and rubbish. He, he knew the Sea of Galilee. Peter was a professional. 
I, I have known a couple of skippers of charter boats, and they know what they're doing. They know the areas to target. They know what they're fishing for. They have years of experience of reading the conditions, knowing what's the right approach to catch a fish, what you're looking for. And uh, there's a certain amount of pride in being able to have that business and to know, to have that lifestyle of living on the water. And so Simon says, boss, we fished all night, haven't caught a thing, but at your word, nevertheless, I'll let down the net. It wasn't because Simon thought they would catch anything. Right? That's not why he let down the net. He's like, I'm going to humor you because you asked me. Because you asked, yes. I don't think I'm going to catch anything. It's an inconvenience. It's likely a waste of time. But because you asked me, I'll do it. So he did what Jesus said. And he was shocked when the net was filled to breaking. It starts to break. They motion the other guys to come alongside. They manage to hoist this net into the, the boats and, and they start sinking because of the volume of the fish. This is a great example Simon gives us of walking by faith. Launching out into the deep, fishing at that time was not his idea. He did not really approve of it. It wasn't his preferred option. He had other things he would rather be doing. But he was willing to do so because Jesus asked him. He, knew, he thought he knew better than Jesus right then. But Jesus knew better. And this is where we go wrong. We say we believe Jesus, but we can follow our own advice instead of doing what he asks, even though we think it's not going to be profitable. How many times has someone, we've asked them for advice, or maybe we haven't asked them for advice and they give it to us anyway, or they share a scripture with us and we go, well, I've tried that and it doesn't work. So we use the fact that we've tried something and it didn't seem to work at that time, to not do it now. Trying and doing are two different things. He doesn't say, Peter, launch out into the deep for a catch. And he goes, I'll try. He says, I will, at your word. Because Jesus didn't ask him an impossible thing. He asked him a thing that he was able to do uh, through Christ and his power. And that's true for us too. If he asks you to do something, through him you can do it because it's him who's doing the work. He strengthens us, right? He helps us. I think we leave a lot undone because we don't want to. Uh, we'd rather do something else or we can't be bothered. And if we'll clear away the excuses and the justification, our resistance and our refusal boils down to unbelief. We don't really believe God. We don't really trust him. Peter does set a good example, though, that he actually did it, even though, I mean, we'd love to say he expected a catch, and he had a great catch. No, he didn't expect it. But Jesus went way beyond his expectations and rewarded his faith and obedience. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Simon sees this great catch. He falls on his knees in the boat and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Notice in verse 5 how he called Jesus master or boss in uh, 
That's epistates in verse 5. But after he saw the miraculous catch, he calls him kurios, which is Lord or Master or Controller, God. So there's been a shift in his thinking. Before he's like Master, Rabbi. Now he's like Lord, God, and he bows before him. He acknowledges for the first time that Jesus is supreme. He is worthy of worship. And in light of that, he saw his own sin. Now, he was obedient to do what Jesus said, but he recognized in his heart the unbelief. Because it says, verse um, 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because they didn't think they were going to catch anything. They had tried all night and hadn't caught anything. And now they were fishing in a time and a place that it wasn't the greatest. If they had expected to catch fish when Jesus says, we're going out for a catch, they wouldn't have been surprised. It would be kind of like uh, hearing about the results of a match or watching the spoilers of a movie before you've actually watched it. There would be no surprise or shock at all. They would have been like, oh, I expected that to happen. You wouldn't feel like nervous about where is this plot going or who wins or what happens now. It looks bleak. But if you know the result, you can have an expectation of like, I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to be afraid that we're going to lose. Jesus, on the other hand, he's not surprised. He's not impressed. I think that's pretty cool. He did not say, wow, that's more fish than I expected. Sometimes I even surprise myself. He doesn't say that. He knew what he was going to catch. He had set it up completely. And who knows if he had been part of the reason that he had prevented them from catching a fish the night before. Just so that they would know beyond all doubt that it was him who enabled them to catch fish. Peter did what Jesus asked, but Jesus did not do what Peter asked. Peter says, Jesus, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. Having his unbelief and pride illuminated but Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And if Jesus could be trusted to launch out into the deep for a catch, well, he also was trustworthy concerning this catching of men, of getting people to come to Christ through the gospel, saving their souls. This falling in worship of Simon is very uh, typical of what we see of people who have a revelation of God in the Old Testament. Um, God appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They reverenced him. Uh, Gideon and Manoah and his wife, where God revealed himself to them. And his life would be preserved. And Jesus had a reason for coming. He had a reason for calling Peter and a purpose that was far greater than just catching fish or making a living. He would catch men through the gospel. And as he led him to catch those fish, he would lead him to catching men, to presenting the gospel and having people respond to it through faith in Christ. Now, has anyone here watched a fishing show? You're like, that is like the dullest thing ever. Now, what I found is a lot of fishing shows, actually catching fish is not the big part of the program. It's kind of like a long advertisement for all the different kinds of gear and the locations, 
and the recipes and the kind of reels and the brand of boat and outboard motor you need and the fish finders. And they, they kind of were hawking all these wares the whole time and we're like, catch the fish. And sometimes they don't catch anything. I'm like, you're a pro and you're out there and you're not even catching anything. And you know what, what style or, or color allure is good when it's overcast or where it's clear or where we should target this species of fish and what techniques are effective and... Um, but notice that not one of those things mattered when it came to Peter and the catching of the fish. It didn't matter what brand or style of boat that he had or what his nets were made out of or how he threw them. or That didn't enter into it because Jesus was with him and Jesus had commanded him. Jesus had led him to do that. And so he made his efforts fruitful. It didn't depend upon technique or experience because we see from the night before, they had the boat, they had the net, They had the expertise, but they were fruitless. They didn't catch a thing. But with Jesus in the boat, that made all the difference. He was now the captain. He was now directing this fishing expedition, and he would direct him and be with him in seeking to save the souls of men. The contrast is night and day, right? Peter toiling, he's tired from casting nets and bringing in empty nets. That tired him out. He did that all night. And then he had this unexpected tiring session that was probably more tiring when he actually caught more fish than his net could handle. And notice it was more than he could handle. It was more than his net could handle. It was more than his boat could handle. He needed to call other people to come and help him because he couldn't do it by himself. And how good this is for us to remember in in seeking to save souls in in seeking to lead people to Jesus, that we need the help of others. In our walk with Christ, in our efforts to be fruitful for Christ, we can't do it alone. We see this happening in the book of Acts where um, the church had grown to such a size that some of the widows were being neglected. And they said, seek out among you some men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and we'll appoint them over this business. And so people gathered together to do the work of the Lord. So it could be fruitful for all. There's nothing wrong with us being well equipped like Peter was for fishing for us to be sharing the gospel. There was a degree of preparation required, right, for this fishing expedition. I mean, the the nets were clean. They were ready. They had been mended. Uh, The boat was right in position. It was right on the shore. All it had to be was pushed in. Um, It was seaworthy. So it wasn't full of holes already. Uh, The the weight of the fish made it start to sink. Um, But as believers, if we're going to apply this to our lives, this example, we should have lives that are at the ready, mouths that are clean, and and hearts that are seeking to please the Lord and be obedient to him. That there's a certain amount of readiness that's uh, truth in our lives that we're we're not walking in sin. We're, we're intentional in seeking to share the truth of the gospel with others, and we're living it out. Repentance, it's that daily process of cleaning those nets, because if you've ever used a net, it grabs everything. I had a friend, uh, when I worked in the trade, he would always cover the boxes um, with a net, and, and there would always be little pieces of wire stuck in it. It would take just a ridiculous amount of time to get the wire that had tangled up in this net. And he's like, yeah, I used to wonder in those old movies like how anyone could get stuck in a net. But now I know. Like, 
This thing just grabs everything. And so that's how our hearts can be. We hear things, we see things. There's, there's, there's bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment and doubt that's in our hearts. And if we're not vigilant to start cleaning that out, it, it hinders our witness. Because when a net is full of junk and you throw it in, the, the almost translucent appearance is lost because there's all these there's debris floating around and the fish can see that and so they'll dart away. The net is effective when it's not seen because they'll swim right into it. So it's this preparation. We should study to show ourselves approved. We shouldn't be cavalier about, well, you know, if, if the Lord wants to save people, he's just going to have to do it himself without my cooperation. Jesus could have had all the fish just jump into the boat. He would have accomplished the same thing to one end, right? That you know that I am God. You've never seen this before. At my word, all those fish obeyed me. So you obey me, Peter. He didn't do that. He chose to use Peter as he placed faith marked by obedience. Then the fruitfulness came. So he involved Peter in the miracle. He involved Peter in what he planned to do. We might interpret God's favor of this great catch of fish. Hey, this is a great fishing spot. More boats, more workers, more nets, more money. But Jesus was going to turn his attention completely away. I mean, catching fish and catching men through the gospel are two very different things. They're really not connected at all. But Jesus is like, he used the catching of the fish to say, now I've got something else for you to do that's totally different than what your experiences and your background is. A whole new arena. And God wants to do that in our lives too. For us to be willing where he says, go here, do this. And we're like, that won't work. Nevertheless, at your word, I will. We sometimes expect God to utilize our, our, need, our, our gifting or our natural abilities, that he's going to leverage those in some way. Um, but God often doesn't do that. He will, but sometimes he'll do something quite different, like in Peter's case. Where he's like, I'm calling you to be a fisher of men. Luke 5.11, so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. These loaded vessels were finally dragged to land. It says, Simon, James, and John forsook all and followed him. They left their boats, their nets, their massive catch to follow Jesus. Wherever he was going, it didn't matter. They were going to follow him. We read that um, James and John left their father in the boat with servants. They let him run the family business. Peter, this was his hometown, and he left to follow wherever Jesus went. Trusting him. This small step of obedience to launch out into the deep for a catch, it revealed to Peter who Jesus was, and then Peter left all to follow him. They forsook the potential prophets and the wealth that they could have, and this shows us that following Jesus always comes at a personal cost. There will always be a cost to following Christ. There are things that Jesus will call you to do and lead you to do that were not your idea, in fact, if, you were, if it was a person telling you, you would question the wisdom of it. But you can rest confidently in God's provision, guidance, and help. It was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, how may I inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he says, what do I have to do? And Jesus told him one thing to do. He says, sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have 
treasure in heaven, follow me. But he was unwilling to do the one thing that Jesus asked him to do. It exposed his love of worldly things over eternal reward. For salvation, there needs to be a shift of allegiance. And we see that in Peter. His allegiance is shifting from his way and the things that he thinks are best to following Jesus and doing whatever he says on his knees as a servant. Now, this issue of unbelief, it's, it's not just among unbelievers, but among Christians. Um, it's the most faith-sapping, worry-inducing, worry-promoting, and rebellion-facilitating thing that we can have in our life. Unbelief. It causes us to not trust God. We can't see our unbelief, and we can't see how it's shaping the way we see the world and see challenges or something we perceive as a challenge because we haven't looked to God. We're not seeing it from the right vantage point. There was a man who brought a demon-possessed son to Jesus. He actually brought him to his followers first, his disciples. Jesus was away. And he said, and it says that the disciples couldn't help him. So the man, he demonstrated faith to bring his son to the disciples of Christ, but faced with their incompetence to do anything or inability to do anything, he said to Jesus, he said, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. Doesn't sound very confident, right? Like if you can do anything, just be, show compassion. Mark 9, 23 and 24, it says, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't say, well, I brought him to you because I thought you could do something. He just says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he's weeping, he's crying, he's broken because he recognizes that in him there is doubt. There is, so he's a man who believed enough to bring his son to Christ, but not enough to believe Jesus could do anything to help him. And this touches on an important point Concerning belief, we must confess our unbelief so that Christ may deliver, from, deliver us from unbelief that plagues us just like the demon plagued that child where we can't get rid of it on our own. We need the help of Christ to wash us clean of the sin of unbelief so that we might trust him and obey him. Because of our blind spots, it's easier for us to see unbelief or the, uh, I guess the, symptoms of unbelief and others more than ourselves. And we have these spelled out for us in Scripture. We're going to look at a few verses about the Hebrews who came out from Egypt. Now, God freed them, these ten miraculous plagues. They saw God and his mighty power, and uh, he led them through the Red Sea. I mean, walls of water on the right and left going through on dry ground, but they doubted. Psalm 106, 24 and 25 it says, then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. So because they didn't believe in God, his word that he had spoken to them, it says they despised the pleasant land. So they hated the thing that God promised them, a good thing. It was a good thing God promised, but they hated it. They complained in their tents and they refused to listen to God. That was the consequence of unbelief. They were not, therefore, allowed to enter into the promised land because they refused to. 
Turn to Psalm 78, starting in verse 18. Praise the Lord for these examples we have from Scripture. I'm sure we could all point to our own lives and say, well, here's an example of unbelief. But it's all written here for our learning. Psalm 78, starting verse 18. It says, And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. What's the result of unbelief here? It says they tested God. They spoke against him. They didn't trust. It's like God does this miracle, and they're like, well, he gave us water, but what about meat? Can he do that? What about bread? How is he going to do that? And it's like, the thing that he's done, apply that logic to the next thing and say, God gave us water. He can give us bread. Even in the wilderness, it doesn't matter where we are, he's going to provide for us. So if we're filled with complaints, if we're paralyzed with doubts, unbelief has taken hold to some extent. There's a bit of unbelief in us. And it didn't just affect the rank-and-file Hebrews that came out of Egypt. We're talking about Moses and Aaron as well. No one can question the real, genuine faith of those men that stood before Pharaoh, that put their lives on the line, trusted God to say, thus says the Lord, and obeyed him, right? We can doubt, we can question the, the validity or the depth of faith in the, those who fell in the wilderness, but Moses and Aaron, they're included in that lot. When the people lacked water, God had told Moses to speak to the rock. He chose, as at a previous time, to strike the rock. God graciously allowed water to flow, but Moses, for his sin, would be kept out of the promised land. And some people say, I've heard, I've heard it said that it was because he disobeyed or because he misrepresented God to the people. I don't believe that Moses was ever called to be a repres- like to represent God to anyone. Um, but the, it tells us very plainly what the sin was, what was behind this. In Numbers 20, verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. It says, because you didn't believe me, because of unbelief. You didn't trust me to obey me. So that's why you're not entering in, just like the rest. So the consequence for, of unbelief for Moses and Aaron and the people were the same. God had a rest for them that they did not enter. They could not enter it. They were not permitted to enter it. Now, the promised land is not a type of heaven because the promised land still had fortifications, enemies, conflicts, wars. The eternal state, that's not how it's going to be for us. There will be a day where death and fighting and conflict, it's over, right? And boy, that's going to be an awesome day. 
But there was a rest. There was an inheritance. There were gifts that God, there was, there was land that he had given them. There was a region he wanted them to occupy and have victory in. And that's where Jesus, he's brought us out of sin and bondage, and he's now brought us into a wide place, a place of rest where his Holy Spirit fills us, where he empowers us to be fruitful, where he can use us and to use the gifts that he's given us. As we walk in love and grace toward all, what was the reason that they gave Pharaoh for why they wanted to leave? That we can worship and sacrifice unto our God. That's why we want out of here. So we have freedom to worship God. And he's like, here's the land. You can do it. Enter in. And they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. We can't. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 3.7. Now this is a passage written to followers of Jesus. Just in case we think that the Old Testament believers or God's people were so different than us and there's no correlation. Just in case. I think you probably have figured out by now that when we look at them and we question, why, why are they so dumb? Now you're like, I'm looking at myself. I'm actually looking at a mirror when I see people doing the wrong thing in the Bible. This is me, and I have to own that so that I can be forgiven from it and increase in maturity and, and love. So Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Using the Hebrews as an example, the writer of Hebrews, he goes back to Psalm 95. Quoting the Holy Spirit who led the children of Israel through the wilderness. They had seen the wonders of God. They had seen his miracles. They had drank from the water from the rock. They had eaten the manna. They had eaten of the quail that he brought. They, they had been miraculously sustained by him for 40 years. They, they had hard hearts. They tested him. They doubted him. Verse 12, he says, Brothers, be careful that you don't have this evil heart of unbelief. And that can be offensive when we think, oh, my heart's not evil, right? It's not wicked. Well, he's talking to believers here, so I have to own that. I want to own that um, so I can be free from it, so I can repent and be cleansed of that wickedness that's naturally in me. Because freedom from Pharaoh and bondage did not mean freedom from selfishness, greed, and pride, and unbelief. Right? They weren't making bricks anymore, but they were still in bondage to the flesh. And through Christ, he has overcome. We have the Holy Spirit now. Ascribing to biblical doctrine, it doesn't mean that we're no longer susceptible to having a hardened and unbelieving heart where we really don't believe God can change anything. 
we're not even willing to bring the, the issue before the Lord anymore because we're like, I've tried it and it doesn't work. When God says, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, believer, concerning all people. Hearts are deceitful. Sin is deceitful. So we're to exhort each other every day to listen to God and to trust God. Right where you're at. Verse 14 continues, For we have been partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. When God said, here's the promised land I brought you to, that I've prepared for you, and the people said, we're not going in there, it's a death trap, ill-advised, no. He said, well, as a consequence for your sin, the spies spent 40 days in spying out the land. So for every, every day they spent there, there's going to be a year where you will be in the wilderness 40 years where I'm leading you through the wilderness providing for you. And faced with that consequence, they said, we're going in. Say, that's a terrible, we, we refuse to abide by that. And Moses is like, don't even think about it, guys. You, you missed your opportunity. You had a chance to enter. You refused to enter. Don't take up arms and think that you can fight your way into the rest that God's given you. Did they listen to him? No, they didn't. They tried to fight their way in, and they got whooped. They got absolutely demolished, thousands dead. And what could they do but weep? That was it. They just lamented, oh, I wish we never would have left Egypt. Instead of repenting for their unbelief. It's like, oh, why didn't we believe? It was so foolish. We should have believed God. Well, let's start believing God. Let's start trusting God. That's not what they said. It's like, oh, if only we had left. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have just died there? Wow. I mean, this is, but this is us, right? This is how we can be. We can be determined to enter the rest that Jesus has offered us by grace by the power of the flesh because we're not trusting him. We refuse to trust him, but we're going to fight and we're going to get in there. We are going to obtain this rest that God has promised. And yet it, it proves elusive and we are slaves to worry and to doubt and preoccupation with things that, God has in hand, plans that he's make it, made and things that he'll accomplish, fears, cares, trouble. Those tears that they cried after that defeat, they were not tears of repentance like the man who brought his son to Jesus. They were tears of bitterness and self-pity. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
We are partakers of Christ through faith in him, and he's promised us rest. He has an inheritance now of rest and for eternity in his presence. And unbelief and refusal, so unbelief is, is often uh, shown by disobedience and a reluctance to respond to God's call. Um, it's a symptom Disobedience is a symptom often of unbelief and it prevents us from entering into that rest that's been freely given to us because the circumstances of the world or our pains are so great that we, we think God, there's no way that he can help us. And we are like Peter who can toil all night long but remain empty. We're looking for something. We can't find it. We think we should. And at this stage, we can be disillusioned and bitter and resentful, frustrated. You're like, what am I doing wrong? I believe all the right things. I'm doing all the right things. Like, why isn't this helping? Where is the rest that Jesus has offered? Where, where's the fruitfulness from my efforts? It's all very selfish. It's all very much pointed at me. But, but Jesus turns these things around where when we fall on our knees in repentance and we say, Lord, I don't even deserve to be around you. Or he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Whatever you're facing, I will make you a fisherman. I will do what I promise. I will never leave or forsake you. He doesn't say, I'll try not to leave you. I'll try not to forsake you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Anyone can say, I am a sinful man. Anybody can prostrate themselves. But the actions of Peter and his companions speak truer than words, where it says, so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Did you guys notice that that's a miracle? There's a miracle of the fish being caught, and we're like, wow, that's amazing. But this is also amazing, because now they're actually following through with the, what the miracle pointed to because it pointed to Jesus being God. And now they're treating him like God and saying, you are not just my boss or a master, you are my Lord, my God. And they followed him. They forsook everything else because they realized that Jesus has the true riches. Jesus has. In him, we have everything, life. So the question is, have you done this, believer? Have you done this? Have you forsaken all to follow him? Now, there's no mention here of them selling off the boats or having like a big fish raffle. You know, hey, we're going on a journey. Don't know where, but put in five bucks and, or five shekels and you can win this great catch of fish and a boat too. They, they, Jesus doesn't tell them to do that. We don't read of anything, him telling them, but they freely followed him. They forsook everything to follow him. Their heart was no longer tied up in those things, in their homes, in their families, in their, in their careers. They, they were Jesus men. And may we be his men and women. We're like, this world doesn't have a grip on me. These things that I have, they're gifts from God to be used for God. And praise the Lord, he's given you stuff and skills and abilities. It was unbelief they needed to forsake too. Lay aside the unbelief, confess it as sin, and follow Jesus. Unbelief, 
Unbelief focuses on what we stand to lose if we follow Jesus. It's always focused on the risk, and your mind goes to that one thing. Well, what about that? Of course he couldn't mean that I forsake that or I leave that behind. Faith, it gladly counts all things loss because in following Jesus, there is only gain. Paul learned this. May we learn this too. That faith sees Jesus as the only prize. Not fame, not recognition, not wealth. So the question is, are we surrendered? Are you surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Are you willing to own and confess your own unbelief so that you might be cleansed of it and by faith enter the rest that only Jesus gives? That's the question for all of us to ask and to answer today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the miraculous things that you do every day, that you've given us life, that you've given us hope through the gospel, that you have a rest to enter into. And you say that if we're, if we're burdened and heavy laden, in you we find rest for our souls. We can't earn it. We can't fight for it. You have given it by grace. And Lord, I pray that you would show all of us um, our hearts of unbelief so we might confess it before you, that we might repent, that we might be cleansed and walk in the new life that you have for us. Not just sometime when we are in your presence in heaven, but right now, today. Today is the day. So Lord, may there be, may you search our hearts, Lord. May you show us um, how we, we have not trusted you fully, that there is unbelief there. And may we confess it. May we own it. May we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief so that we can trust you and follow you and obey you, even as Peter did when he, he questioned your plans. Lord, may we do more than humor you, but believe you, proclaim you, and be those fishers of men that you called us to be because we are your followers and we love you. Thank you for the life that we have through Jesus. Thank you for the hope of heaven and for forgiveness and for the grace and love you've shown us all. Lord, may, may we be strengthened to band together as your people to encourage and support one another uh, until you come, Lord Jesus. We thank you again for this day and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.